Good morning. It is my joy this morning to be able to bring to you uh, John chapter 13 verses 1 to 17, a a remarkable text uh, which has so very much to say to us today. And this is what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. Now, as we move into chapters 13 to 17, we enter into a new section in the Gospel of John. As we've been noting for the last few weeks, the time for Jesus to proclaim who he is has come to an end. Now, as we move into chapter 13, we find him preparing the disciples for what is to come. Now, events begin to move rather quickly. No longer do we have the months and years of ministry. Now, we find things compressed into the hours before the cross. This is what lies behind uh, the opening uh, words in the first verse, when it says that we've come to to those moments before the feast of the Passover. It is a a resumption of the countdown initiated in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, when there were six days before the feast. At that point, we had six days before that final meal, almost a week before his arrest and mock trial and sentence. Now, we are but hours away from the suffering and death on the cross. As we see here, Jesus knows full well how little time is left, knows full well how small a window there remains before the hour of his departure. And so John employs a euphemism here for the crucifixion when he writes that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. However, this discreet way of talking about Christ's death 
is not because John wishes to avoid talking about the cross. Uh, he is not trying to protect our sensibilities, to reduce the unpleasantness, uh, or, or diminish the suffering by providing a more pleasing description. No. The cross looms large over all of the material. But as John is writing, he's trying to show it in a bigger picture. John is trying to show that the cross is but a step in a bigger journey. Uh, the cross is that ultimate struggle through the valley of the shadow of death, but it is still part of a journey towards the light. In other words, uh, John here writes about Jesus' imminent death, but in a way that helps shift the focus away from the immediate shame of the cross, away from the pending suffering that Christ will endure, in order to show us the bigger picture. Uh, to focus on Jesus' return to glory, a glory that he had had from eternity. He is attempting to put the temporary suffering into an eternal perspective, to show that the apparent defeat in death is in fact a step towards his return to glory as the victorious conqueror of death. It's actually a, a perspective that we are encouraged to adopt when we face our own suffering. Uh, this is what lies behind other exhortations, such as um, uh, Paul in, in Romans 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. What an incredible verse it is. Uh, after all, what we have here is a text that says, Glory. That moment when we enter into glory, when we see God face to face... Well, <clears throat> it's incomparable. <laughs> Specifically, Paul tells us that the suffering that we go through, even when combined, even when it refers to all of the sufferings of our lifetimes, cannot be compared to glory. Now, please note, he does not say that when you get to glory, that you'll see that on balance it was all worth it. You know, when, when you're in the throne room of heaven, you'll think, yeah, this is better. He does not say, if you hold the two side by side, all of your suffering and glory, that glory manages to win. He says it cannot be compared. I mean, do you realise what that means? If I was to say that the present sufferings were a drop of water, a, a, a tiny droplet reduced to a molecular level observable only under the most powerful of microscopes, and then say that glory was all of the water in the world, um, all of the oceans, all of the rivers and the streams and the lochs, all of the ponds and the puddles and swimming pools, uh, all of the ice, uh, all of the groundwater, all of the vapour in the air, all of the water in every living thing, all of it. Vast and unimaginable. And I was to say that that was glory. And, I, and then I was to say that our sufferings is that droplet. Well, Paul would have to ruefully shake his head. He would have to say, no, Ian, <laughs> you still don't get it. Because they cannot be compared. Even with such a comparison, we fail to grasp the scale of glory. Now, I don't say that lightly. I know what it is to struggle, but I know it cannot be compared. I know what it is to lose loved ones, and yet I know it cannot be compared. 
I know what it is to be reduced by sickness, to wake up every morning in pain, and yet it cannot be compared. I know what it is like to wake up in the morning and to be overcome with the desire not to have to go on anymore, and yet it cannot be compared. What a verse. Uh, what a message. What an assurance. And so even as we come to the cross, John ensures that we see it set in the context of glory. Jesus will suffer. He will die a shameful, unjust death. And it is terrible. There are no words to convey how awful it is. But it is not the end of the story. It is a stopping point on the road to glory. And so it is at this critical juncture with the cross looming and eternity beckoning, that John, who so often focuses on the love of Jesus Christ, focuses on, on a further expression of Jesus' love for his own. It is important that beyond the theological lessons and the practical requirements, which we'll come on to, that we see in this foot washing, Jesus demonstrating his love for his disciples. Indeed, it is a glimpse into the motivation for the cross. His, his, his dying, because that was the clear, unequivocal, uh, physical demonstration of the love of God, an undeniable expression of God's love for the world. And as such, our opening verse makes it clear. As he prepares to wash their feet, it is because he loves them. As he prepares for the final hours before his death, he manages here to express just how he had lived, in that he loved them to the very end. To love, that he pours out in the full knowledge that one of his disciples, one of those he held so dear, was going to betray him. Even with the betrayer in the room, Jesus the master, Jesus the teacher, proceeds to engage in the menial task of washing the disciples' feet. In verses 4 to 12, we see it played out in detail, and it is shocking, is it not? The idea, that the notion that Jesus stood, put aside his clothing, put on the towel of a servant. Yet, it points to the even more shocking fact that he put aside the robes of splendour, put aside life and glory in order to take on that towel of living as a man. And so here the king of glory takes the towel of a servant as he performs a menial task of washing the feet. Now, <clears throat> there is, of course, a cultural element to the feet washing here, uh, which I suppose makes it even more unusual for us. However, I mean, we read about this as a practice as, as early as uh, Genesis 18, verse 4, where it appears to be a cultural practice before sitting down to a meal. It was expected to be performed before you entered into the presence of your host. It was required so that you did not track the filth of the road into the home. And the practice continues and remains in place in the New Testament. Given the dusty roads of Palestine, it was a cultural norm to have the opportunity to wash your feet or have your feet washed by a servant. However, the fact that it was a common practice does not remove the shock of what Jesus does. And it certainly does not remove the importance of how he describes what he is doing. If we want to see what Jesus is doing, we should, first of all, remember the context. 
This is the time of the Passover. It is interesting to to remember what John wrote in chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This point, just before the Passover, is already a time when being ceremonially clean before God was at the forefront of people's minds. It is a time where, as the people of God, they would seek to be clean so that they could have access to the presence of God. And it's an interesting concept, and I think it is one that most Christians tend to forget. Uh, For the minds of the Old Testament uh, reader, uh, for, 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 for the disciples sitting there as Jesus washed their feet, there were different forms of being clean. It's a point probably made most clearly in in Psalm 51, uh, where David seeks to be clean, and he wants to be clean three times over. Uh, There are different Hebrew terms used in in verse 1 and 2 of that psalm to talk about being clean. Uh, uh, The first one, it describes being a a, a cleaning that is like the the records being clean. Uh, It's almost as if there was a, a giant book with all of your crimes noted and dated, and it sits there as evidence against you. And then when God makes those records clean, he, he wipes them out. In other words, the first form of, 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 of being clean is that form of comprehensive forgiveness. The, the, the utter removal of all of those sins crying out against you. The psalm in verse 2 then talks about a cleaning of the heart, where that stain of sin has left its mark. It is a change in the person. So it becomes possible to stand there as as one of the clean ones before God. As one of his own. And finally there's a third term uh, which talks about a ceremonial cleansing. Which would allow you into the presence of God. It's this last example that Jesus will pick up on here. This ceremonial cleansing. Um, It can be seen in texts such as um, Exodus 30, 18-21. And it is important. In that Exodus example, the priests, the servants of God, would wash their hands and their feet before embarking on the service of God. It's an idea that continues through the book of Leviticus, uh, perhaps best summed up in Joshua, when he tells the people in chapter 3, verse 5, Sanctify yourselves, uh, clean yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders amongst you. You see, we're already talking about the people of God. We're already talking about the servants of God. Uh, There is no question as to their salvation. They're no less the children of God when they're unclean in this last way. However, when it came to handling the things of God, when it came to taking part in the service of God, when it came to entering into the presence of God, they were to be ceremonially clean. Now, the way I usually describe this is, is to recount uh, a moment from my, my childhood. I was, I was a, when I was a teenager, uh, I used to love uh, playing uh, rugby. Now, I used to really love it. And when I lived at home in, in Stornoway, uh, the, the rugby pitch was not that far from my house. And so, um, at the end of, of, of one particularly muddy and therefore enjoyable game, uh, I do remember thinking to myself, why am I going to cram myself into the freezing cold shower block with uh, 29 other men? Well, I could just go home. I could just 
just washing the shower at home. I could have a, a warm shower, a nice fluffy towel, uh, and off I went. In my, my teenage foolishness, I went home covered in mud. And so I come up to the door, I come up to the front door, and my dad is standing there waiting for me. He goes, uh-huh, round the back. And so I thought, well, fair enough, I've got to use the back entrance, you know, pretty closer to the shower, that's fine. And as I make my way round, my dad meets me at the back with a hose. <sighs> Hoses me down. Blasts off the mud, <laughs> the filth in the freezing cold water. It's important to remember, at that moment when he was washing me down, that I was no less his son, and ceased to be his child. But I could not enter the house as I was. I couldn't go into the house and, and, and pick up my, my little sister and put her on my knee, sit on the settee, whilst covered in mud. I was his child, but I could not enter into their presence. And that hose, just as with the ancient practice of foot washing, uh, meant that I could not track the filth of the field into the home. Uh, and we forget, you know, that there's a difference between being the child and having access to the presence. And so the children of God in the Old Testament and, and here in the Gospels were expected to wash their hands and wash their feet as a sign that they understood, that they recognised that there's a myriad of things that they could do and a myriad of ways in which the things of the world could just simply get in the way. They washed, not because they wanted to be one of the children of God, but because they were one of the children of God and wanted to have God active in their lives. They wanted to get rid of, of, of the rubbish of that day before him. They wanted to have God himself. They wanted him to be doing incredible things. It was not actually enough to be a child of God because this is not a question of salvation. They wanted to be living with him. And all it took for that was for the people to acknowledge that they needed him. That they wanted him. That uh, they had an attitude that said, cleanse me from all of this. The important thing was not the water, it was that desire to be clean, that desire, that yearning to see God in their lives. And I think this helps us understand the discourse between Jesus and Peter. At first, in verse 6, uh, Peter is incredulous. <laughs> the very idea of Jesus washing his feet is almost too difficult to comprehend. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah... Jesus, the saviour of the world, washing the feet of a Galilean fisherman. The teacher tending the pupil, the greater serving the lesser. The Lord serving this man who would later deny him three times. It just was not done. It's not the way of the world and that's kind of the point. So Peter is aghast. He refuses the, the, the cleansing. And so Jesus points out that without it he has no part of what Christ is going to do. At this, Peter declares that Jesus should cleanse his feet, his, his hands and his head. Uh, and in response, Jesus refers directly to the different forms of being clean. Uh, he, again, will use three different terms in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Uh, literally, here, he is saying that the one who has been thoroughly washed 
In other words, the one who's been saved has no need for a further small washing, as if your salvation needed to be uh, gained again and again. Uh, instead here, the ceremonial cleansing of the feet is all that is required because you are already pure. The idea uh, linked to the Old Testament cleansing is that if you are saved, you do not need to fear and seek your salvation again. For you, all that is required is that you come to God daily, wanting to be clean, wanting him to walk with you that day, the cleansing of the feet. The internal cleansing from the stain of sin has been done. We do not need to fear our standing before God, for we are pure. But we should come to him daily to have the dust of the world washed away, to have the external dirt washed away so we can enter into his presence. Have nothing that would stand in the way. We should be washed so we do not track the filth of the world into his presence. Of course, at the end of that verse, Jesus points out that there is one who is not clean. One of you is not pure before God, he declares. What a contrast. For the rest of the disciples, they are clean and with just a small ceremonial action required, a, a heartfelt desire to have God. But Judas is not clean. No amount of ceremony, no amount of water is going to change that. You see, it was never enough to simply rely on some rites and rituals. It was always about the heart. It was always about the attitude towards God. It was always about putting our trust in him as our saviour. It's a point made throughout the Old Testament. Um, but for one example, there's uh, Hosea 6 verse 6. But I desire love and not sacrifice. The, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, uh, whilst it was shocking that Jesus washed the feet of Jesus, it is almost incomprehensible that he then went and washed the feet of Judas. The text does not say that he washed the feet of the disciples with the exception of Judas. Indeed, Judas is only excluded once he leaves that table in the Last Supper. It comes as a surprise to everybody at that later point that he is the one to betray Jesus. And so it is a powerful example of the love of Christ even for those who class themselves as his enemies. In any event, when he had finished in verse 12, he gets dressed, resumes his place and asks them, Do you understand what I have done to you? There are a number of aspects to what he has done. He's cleansed them. He's prepared them so that they can share with him in what is to come. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's ready them to serve. He has, in a sense, commissioned them uh, wherever they will go with their, as it were, wherever their feet will take them. And so they are warned that they can only understand, given the perspective of time. Later, you will grasp this. But for now, crucially, he points out that there is a greater lesson for them to grasp in this moment. From verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. But I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done to you. The lesson of the foot washing, the message is to be grasped by the disciples, the purpose that stands the test of time reaching down to us today is the humble service to one another. Um, this is why Paul in, in uh, Galatians 5.13 uh, wrote that the followers of Christ ought to serve one another humbly in love. 
I mean, when the master performs such an act, how can we, his servants, even hesitate? Now, one of the great strengths of the ceremonial cleansing of the Old Testament was that it required action. It was not just a case of uttering some good-sounding words or even having some great intentions. It was rooted in action. So to our passage concludes in, in verse 17 with these words, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What we do matters. Uh, we can say how much we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but what we do really matters. Uh, Jesus could have just told his disciples the truth of loving each other, but instead he got up, he took on that towel, the garb and role of a servant in order to make the point. It only works if you do it. However, it is also about the attitude. <clears throat> Not just about the actions, uh, just like that ceremonial washing, the desire to be clean was the important part. Even as you perform the actions, you are judged on the state of your heart. In other words, it's not just about a ritual. Now, just to warn you, I'm not entirely opposed to getting a basin of water out to help us learn this lesson. Yet even if you washed every single foot in the church, it is not sufficient. Because it also really matters, possibly even uh, matters even more about the attitude that you have whilst you do it. Uh, let me put it this way. Given that we are commanded to humbly serve each other in love, I'm trying to keep within the, the foot washing example. And let me ask, what state is your water in? Imagine that the water represents your attitude towards each other. So, so do you have the boiling water of anger and resentment towards each other? Let me tell you, nobody wants to have their feet washed in boiling water. Now, perhaps you think yourself uh, better than your brethren. You have the freezing cold water of disdain. But again, no one is going to willingly have their feet washed in such conditions. Perhaps you think to act in truth without love, to wash the feet without any water at all, willing to scrape away the dirt, willing to tear into that person so that the dust is removed alongside the skin. Perhaps you come with an empty basin because you have no intention of loving your brother, uh, but instead merely pretend to wash the feet. Well, we are called to action, uh, to wash one another's feet, but we're told it has to be done in love. All of which means that what we do and how we do it really matters. It may be that you recognise yourself in all that talk of, of ill-used water. Yet praise God, we have a Redeemer who says, let me wash off that dust. Let me take that which holds you back. Let me clean you so you are ready to serve. It is true for all of us. None of us could serve, except we felt his cleansing hand on our lives. So, be cleansed, be made ready, call out to God to make you ready, and then serve him by serving one another in love. Amen.